Well, friends, I'm sorry that I can't be uh, with you in person today, but I've had a, a pretty sore throat and a bad cough for the past few days, and rules are rules. Uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you that by it you make us wise for salvation in Christ. And we pray that you would be graciously doing that by your spirit now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> a little while ago, there was a popular British TV show called How to Start Your Own Country. Uh, a guy called Danny Wallace, he went off and he found some disputed territory between France and Spain. He had his own flag designed and made up. He had his own coins pressed for currency. And he then started to try to persuade the people of both France and Spain to leave their homelands and to come and join his new country to become citizens of Wallace land. He gave out leaflets informing people of how he would make a terrific king for them. And he started with that classic promise, no taxes, but with no real explanation as to how anything would actually be paid for. Now, I don't know how many people joined his tax-free kingdom. Now, I don't think it lasted more than a couple of weeks before the, both the French and the Spanish military gave Danny a call and asked him, look, what's going on? But I wonder... Uh, what would have made you join Danny Wallace's kingdom? Or more importantly, what would have made you want him to be your king? A king you were willing to follow and obey and, and give your allegiance to in all situations. Well, today in 1 Samuel, we see God's king for his people in action. Uh, before we get to that, let's just have a very quick recap. Uh, earlier in chapter 8, we saw Samuel, uh, the judge of Israel, uh, getting on in years. So he set out to install his sons to succeed him as rulers of Israel. But Samuel's sons were not fit to lead. Uh, they were dishonest. They were open to taking bribes and to perverting the course of justice. And Israel's leaders, they knew this. They were not happy. And yet their solution to Israel's leadership crisis was not a good one. They had asked Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations have. They wanted to depend on a man to fight their battles for them instead of trusting in the God who had constantly delivered them from their every threat and provided for them in his good land. Well, God is gracious. He tells Samuel, as his prophet, to warn Israel the harsh rule this new king would eventually bring, that he would take their possessions, their servants, and eventually even, in some cases, their freedom. In spite of this, the people still insist. They tell Samuel, no, we want a king like all the other nations have. And so the Lord tells Samuel, very well, give them a king. Last week we found out who that king, God's first anointed king for Israel, would be. It would be Saul, the Benjamite. Uh, through this series of strange encounters, the Lord made it clear to Samuel that Saul would be God's first anointed king for all Israel. And Samuel, we saw anointed king, uh, uh, Saul as king in chapter 10, but God's people still don't know that Saul is the one who would rule them. And so we start today with Samuel calling Israel 
to one place. Come with me to verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Uh, Mizpah. Uh, It's the same place where Samuel had interceded for the whole of Israel for the Lord to rescue them from the Philistines back in chapter 7. This was where God saved his people and routed their greatest enemy before them. And now they're back at Mizpah, but, but not to recognize God as their true king and deliverer, but to rather receive the king they had requested of Samuel like all the other nations had. Uh, the one they would look to to deliver them from their enemies. Samuel's not going to let them forget that this new king embodies their rejection of God as their true deliverer and Lord. Samuel rebukes them. Verse 18, read with me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, (coughs) and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you, but you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us, so now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. It's certainly not the nicest of coronation speeches, but it is brutally honest. Israel begin to present themselves before Samuel, and the lots are drawn. This was the process by which all Israel would find out who would be God's chosen king for them. As Samuel draws out lot by lot, and so each tribe or each clan, it's whittled down until only one man from one clan, from one tribe, remains. And in verse 20, we see the first lot is drawn. And of course, the tribe of Benjamin is chosen. Then Benjamin, as a tribe, presents themselves clan by clan. And Matri's clan is chosen. And then, of course, finally, Saul, son of Kish, is identified. But there's a problem. Saul, the son of Kish, is not present. Has something gone wrong? Has the Lord got it wrong? Israel asked him in verse 22, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Can you imagine uh, Malaysia waiting for the revealing of our next Agon? And in the middle of the coronation ceremony at the palace, as his very name is announced, one of the aides just whispers in the MC's ear, oh, he's not here. We can't find him. But worse still, after a a complete search of the palace is carried out, the the soon-to-be-crowned Agon for Malaysia is discovered cowering under one of the buffet tables, shaking with fear. That was the scene for Israel. Saul, their first king for whom they would look to to fight their battles for them, who, who was supposedly going to deliver them from their enemies, and he's found hiding in the baggage. It's not a terrific first impression, Israel, is it? Israel's new king (coughs) really didn't want to be king. And yet the decision is out of Saul's hands. They track him down. They pull him out of the baggage, away from the camels. And in response to his decent physique, Israel cry out with one voice, verse 24, long live the king. And Saul, despite his best efforts to hide, will be God's first anointed king for all Israel. And yet, 
God doesn't allow Israel to push him out of the picture here. In no sense is, is this new king going to be a replacement for God or going to allow Israel to distance themselves from their obligations to God. No, this king was going to be governed by the same covenant that God had made with his people. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship and he wrote them in a book <coughs> and laid it up before the Lord. The covenant that God had made with his people had not become void, rather now their newly appointed king was clearly subject to it in his role as well. His role was still God's people. Uh, the only difference was they were now under God's chosen king for them, the king who was still very much under God. Samuel dismisses them, and Israel go back to their homes. And it seems that Saul already has a bit of a following. We're told in verse 26, valiant men whose hearts have been touched by God, they accompany Saul home. They're, they're delighted with their new king and they're, they're willing to fight to enforce his right to rule. But not everyone has taken to Saul's new position with such jubilation. Verse 27, we're told there were some troublemakers who sneered, saying, how can this guy truly save us? And they obviously weren't afraid to let Saul know how they felt. They didn't bring him the customary tribute. But Paul, Saul keeps silent. Like this was his first experience of opposition since he had been made king, but Saul doesn't do anything. You see, he's still yet to prove himself as a, a true leader who is able to endure and fight opposition wisely. One of the main reasons Israel wanted him to be king. But fortunately, it doesn't take long before Saul has this opportunity to prove just that. An opportunity to see God's king in action. Come with me to 11 verse 1. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. It seems the men of Jabesh are in a spot of serious trouble. They are totally surrounded by some merciless enemies led by Nahash, the Ammonites. And the men in Jabesh are so helpless, they, they are ready to, to wave the white flag, to surrender and accept terms. But these terms that they are told, they are not ordinary and they are not nice. The terms were, <coughs> verse 2, as Nahash puts it, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Basically, Nahash says to them, oh, you will be spared, but your right eye will not. This was an inhumane and cruel term that would have left soldiers in particular helpless in future military engagements. Let me show you why with a practical demonstration. Uh, I want everybody, whether you're at home or you're at church right now, put your arms out in front of you and take your index fingers and with both eyes open, have your index meet, uh, fingers meet in front of you. It's quite easy, right? Okay, now take your arms back. Now try and do the same thing again, but close your right eye this time and see what happens. Closing your right eye. Try and meet your index fingers. And I suspect most of us missed. Uh, to lose your right eye seriously affects your depth of vision. And that is a very bad news for a soldier, and particularly an archer. That could mean the difference between life or death 
on the battlefield. Well, so confident is Nahash that he's going to win that, that he even allows uh, the men of Jabesh to, to send out uh, messengers across the land of Israel for help, for reinforcements, to spare them from this terrible fate. Now, Nahash was confident. He was probably thought there's no way they'll have time to raise a great enough force to fight off this threat. So these messengers they're sent out, they reach Saul's home, town, Gibeah, and they tell the people there, and of course the, the response is crying and wailing and despair. Just at this point, Saul is arriving back from the fields and he asks what's going on. And when he's told, when he hears the news of this peril the men of Jabesh are facing, read with me verse 11, verse 11, verse 6, chapter 11, verse 6. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. And Israel, they certainly get the message. They are filled with the terror of God himself for the sake of these oxen cut to pieces. They turn out just as one man. Saul's opportunity to prove himself as Israel's king in battle has arrived. But God is the one who will empower him to do it. And Saul is recognizing that already, thankfully. You notice how Saul said in verse 7, this is what we've done to the oxen of anyone who doesn't follow Saul and Samuel. See, Samuel is God's chosen means to communicate, to be a prophet for Israel. And Saul is rightly recognizing that the people should still follow Samuel as well as himself as king. Well, the men are assembled and the messengers are told to, to return to Jabesh. And once the men of Jabesh have, have received this wonderful news of promised deliverance, well, they tell the Ammonites the following, verse 10, Oh, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever seems good to you. No doubt chuckling under their breaths at the same time. And the next day, Saul delivers <coughs> on his promise. He, he splits the men into three groups. It's a time-proven strategy. And about dawn, they break into the Ammonite camp. And it's not so much a battle as it is a massacre, uh, as they slaughter the Ammonites to a moon, to the point that any Ammonite found in the fields, he finds himself alone. So the men of Jabesh, they've been rescued. But who, who is it that's rescued them? Verse 12, we see that Israel believe it, it is Saul. And they want the heads of those troublemakers who despised his rule in the first place. But Saul says no. And he answers our question, verse 13, who has saved them? But Saul said, no one shall be put to death today. For this day, the Lord rescued Israel. Yes, Saul had promised deliverance and led Israel into battle, but it was the Lord who through Saul delivered the men of Jabesh. It was his spirit that empowered Saul to do it. No one will be put to death on the day that the Lord has delivered his people, even if they had questioned his ability as their God-given king. Uh, so instead, Samuel tells everyone to go to Gilgal to reaffirm the kingship. At Mizpah, Saul had been chosen and proclaimed as king, but not fully endorsed by the people. Now God had proven his king in action, and so now all the people will establish him as their rightful king. Well, so far, Paul has Saul has been a bit of a coward, but he has still honoured the Lord <coughs> in his actions. 
Will it remain this way? Time will tell. Or come back next week. But how does this story of Saul's rise to power uh, apply to us as God's people today? Well, as we know, this wasn't the last time God used his chosen king to work a great deliverance for his people facing a terrible threat. As terrible as the enemies of the Ammonite, uh, the enemies the Ammonites were, no doubt, we as humanity face a far more serious threat, far worse than merely losing our right eyes. No, we face God's holy wrath, his just anger against our sin, against our willful desire to seek to live life away from him as our creator and our Lord and to seek to live life as we see fit, enjoying the things that he gives us but having no time for him. We have all made the decision that the Israelites made, uh, seeking to replace God as the king of our lives with something or someone else. And God is just. He must not let humanity's rebellion against his king continue indefinitely. And yet God is so gracious and delights to show mercy as well. well we've certainly seen his grace in our passage today, God delivered the men of Jabesh helpless at the hands of their enemy through Saul, his chosen king, the very king who was effectively the embodiment of Israel's rejection of God as their God. And yet God has brought about an even greater rescue by nothing but his awesome mercy through his true king for all our world, one who, unlike Saul, never faltered, never hid away, and never sought to avoid the road of suffering that his father had laid before him to walk. No, Jesus walked the path of perfect obedience as God's king, in wholehearted love for his father and for us, his fellow man. He lived the life that we failed to live, and yet, like Saul, Jesus ascended to his throne in the midst of rejection. Though he was God in the flesh, the Son of God come to be with us, we as humanity refuse to acknowledge him. And so Jesus' coronation meant a crown of thorns. It took place in the midst of mocking and ridicule. As Jesus, in unfathomable love, willingly died the death we deserve for our every disobedience against God, paying the full price for our treason, God's chosen king saved us his enemies, not by military might, but by his precious blood shed for our sakes. As we read in Mark's gospel earlier, Jesus as God's king, as God who took on flesh for our sakes, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is our one true hope and comfort in the face of sin, in the face of death. And we know that because God exalted his king. Now, death could not hold Jesus. And so now, being raised, he seats 
He sits on the highest throne as God's king for all creation, which means he is God's king for you and for me. Do we recognize that today? Are we living with Jesus as our rightful king? Or are we like the troublemakers in Saul's day who continue to despise, to distance, to reject God's anointed one? Who, who give him no tribute, who do not trust his worthiness and so instead despise him? On that day of Saul's victory, the troublemakers were mercifully spared. But on the last day, those who persist in rejecting Christ as Lord will not be spared. To refuse God's king is to refuse God, and that invites his judgment. And so if you haven't, please recognize Jesus for who he is, the king who lived and died to rescue us from death itself, that we might know life with him forever. And for those of us who do know Jesus, as our risen king, are we drawing comfort from that at this of all times as we are being confronted in the most dramatic of ways with the reality of suffering and death that we see in our fallen world for the moment? As the COVID crisis continues to claim lives, and our world cries out for relief, are we able to say as the people of the King to live as Christ and to die as gain? Because in him we know we are secure, no matter what. We need simply trust and so follow and take comfort in our King. He is able to deliver all who belong to him. Friends, that is the good news that we need to be sharing with our world in its distress and suffering today. As it cries out for relief, we can say God has established his king who is a real comfort, who brings a real deliverance whether in life or even death. We just need to continue holding fast to him. Well, let's pray that God, by his grace, would help us to do exactly that. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your incredible mercy and faithfulness, you delivered your people from their enemies in spite of their rejection of you. We thank you for the rescue that you offer us in your own precious Son, that we too might be saved from the consequences of our rebellion. We might be your people again. Please help us to witness to the fact that Jesus is King of all creation, who lived and died and rose to give us a promised hope even in the face of death. Help us to be making that known. To our neighbours who are crying out for relief today, we pray. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.